Twisted Sisters Crime will contain mature content, graphic descriptions, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast may upset trauma survivors. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you all had a wonderful week and are ready for a great episode. Today we're heading to the East Coast to the Great New York. So their crime rate is at 3.59 or 1 in 279 people. There were 558 murders, 6,583 rapes, 18,068 robberies, and 44,555 assaults. This is the data from 2019 from Neighborhood Scout. Thank you all for your support, and without further ado, I'm going to start my story. I'm going to let you know now, it's a little, like, jumpy, so I kind of jump from time to time. Okay. So just... Bear with me and keep that in mind. We have Lacey Spears. She was born and raised in Alabama. Lonely as a single mother and desperate for attention, Lacey constantly posted on social media about her son's health, struggles, and was even going as so far as to start a blog devoted for her search for a cure for whatever illness like she thought she ha- he had. Telling friends she wanted to leave Alabama, Lacey moved with her son Garnett to Florida to live with her maternal grandmother Peggy. While there, Lacey became friendly with Kim, a neighbor. Lacey confided in Kim and told her that her father had raped her and Garnett was the product of this said assault. Dang! Eventually she moved with her son to the town of Chestnut Ridge, New York. 14 months prior to Garnett's death. In New York, Lacey and Garnett lived in a community called the Fellowship. It was more for like elderly and disabled people. So her being a single mom just moving to New York, she kind of applied for that. (laughs) In explaining her son's paternity, she created fictional characters. She created a police officer named Blake who died in a car accident said to be his father she did lie to garnett's alleged biological father chris hill that garnett wasn't his son and threatened to keep him distant from her and garnett so kind of going back garnett spears was born december 8 2008 he was only five years old when he died january 23 2014 Cause of death was determined to be high levels of sodium, which led to brain swelling. After his death, Garnett's mother, Lacey, was charged with second-degree murder and first-degree manslaughter of her five-year-old son. On March 2, 2015, a jury found Lacey guilty of murdering her son by poisoning him with table salt, which she had administered to him from infancy through a feeding tube he had. Is it just because he ate too much of it, or...? No. How do you poison salt? So, yeah, we'll kind of go through how she did it. (laughs) Yeah, but he did have a feeding tube since he was really little. Okay. And so she basically injected this salt through his feeding tube to give, like, to make him be sick, basically. Okay. So, on April 8th, 2015, a judge sentenced Lacey to 20 years to prison 
for the death of her son. The judge in this case, Robert Neary, acknowledged that Lacey Spears suffers from Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Therefore, did not sentence her to a maximum of 25 years in prison before parole. So, if you don't know what Munchausen syndrome by proxy is, it's a condition in which a caregiver creates the appearance of health problems in another person, typically their own child. This may include injuring the child or altering tests that have been given. They then present the person as being sick or injured. The behavior occurs without a specific benefit to the caregiver. So... It's like that Gypsy Rose. Yes, it is just like that Gypsy Rose. Mm -hmm. We have Dr. Mark Sirkin, a clinical psychologist and Mercy College professor, cautions that he has not examined Lacey, but he has read news accounts of Garnet's life and death. He notes that a woman whose self-esteem was underdeveloped may reach out for attention to compensate for that. He quotes, if you're a girl raised in a family in which you don't get the nurturance that every person needs to form a healthy personality, you start to take in things from the outside that will give you a ready-made personality, end quote. He also quotes, being a mom is a ready-made role that our society provides women. I would speculate that this young woman was so empty that here was this ready-made society, society role that she could just jump into, and who doesn't love a caretaking mom? Even at the early age, she would get praise, which he guesses she was desperately sought for being a good role, a good role model, good mother, and good caretaker. And the internet also gave this extra oomph a lot of juice Suddenly, she's not just a good mom in a small group. She's an international mom, a good viral mom. Suddenly, everyone's giving her all these types of kudos. Mm. Yay. I love that clout. <laughs> love it. So, growing up, Lacey had an American Girl doll. Okay, I really wanted an American Girl doll when I was little, so I don't blame her. I know, right? <laughs> I was always looking at the magazines like, Mom, can I you know. get me Elizabeth, please? <laughs> I know. Me too. I wish my niece had one. Lacey loved Lifetime movies and this kind of comfort of her show's drama. Seventh Heaven was one of them about a minister, his stay-at-home wife, and their seven children where problems were presented and it resolved in 60 minutes. But the childhood Lacey de depicted and had drama, kind of more of a darker side. She kind of would tell friends disturbing stories of abuse, abortion, anorexia. What the? I know, <laughs> these stories got so far out that some friends even planned interventions of sort to kind of confront her about these obvious blatant lies and help her kind of change her ways and that's kind of back when she was starting high school the journal news is not publishing certain details of Lacey's reported allegations against others due to sensitive nature 
and that there have been no public findings about their truthfulness. Alabama social services officials would neither confirm or deny an existing case on Lacey, citing confidentiality policies. But New York investigators have heard of the allegations. The probe into Garnett's death has focused on a rare psychological disorder, Munchausen by proxy. This disorder is not known. One theory cited in a report on the National Institute of Health website is that certain people with this disorder were victims of abuse or neglect themselves. The combination of possible abuse and capacity for lying, another trait of Munchausen, is tech technically known as facetious disorder imposed on another. It can kind of make it difficult to tell where the truth is. So she definitely did have a little bit of problems. In the summer of 2000, when Lacey was 14, she told friends she was pregnant. Friends didn't think she was, and she definitely didn't look like she was having a baby, but they also didn't want to call her a liar. Later, Lacey told her friends that she had gone to Birmingham's Caraway Methodist Medical Center to get an abortion. But when friends challenged the story and said abortions weren't done at that hospital, and it had, which it, the hospital did close in 2008, she replied, oh, I went to Florida. <laughs> friends said that Lacey followed a pattern of kind of telling whopper after whopper. So if she didn't get like a certain reaction, she would move to a bigger lie. Sirkin, the Mercy College psychologist, sees signs in Lacey um, of heightened storytelling in her later years. Signs of a woman compensating for low self-esteem. Which I don't blame her. I have low yeah. self-esteem. But I won't be lying to people I'm saying I'm having babies. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she obviously didn't get the attention she needed, but like, at what point is she going to realize that doing this isn't getting her attention either? Because everyone's just like, girl, shut up. Nobody cares. <laughs> right? Before there was Garnet, there was Jonathan Strain, a boy uh, Lacey watched at, at a daycare and kind of on the weekends. Jonathan's mother, Autumn Hunt, learned that Lacey was posting photos on MySpace, Facebook, claiming to be Jonathan's mother. When she confronted Lacey, Lacey did apologize, saying she wouldn't ever hurt Jonathan. Similarly, before there was Jonathan, there was Cameron Clark, who Lacey watched when she was just out of high school. Again, she did present herself as the boy's mother, irking the real mom to kind of break ties off with Lacey. I mean, so we all know that I'm Lucas's real mom, but... Right, of course. <laughs> he just didn't come out of your vagina, he came out of mine. Yeah, so. whatever. <laughs> but I mean, without your knowledge, if I was yes. going around like, this is my child... I'd be a little upset, I, but... <laughs> especially if we didn't know each other, like... I know, if, if you just, like, watched Lucas, I'd be like, what the fuck? And now... <laughs> Like, what are you doing? What is this girl doing? That is doing? not your child. Please stop it. <laughs> I would be scared that she would kidnap him. Seriously. So I'd be like, I think we're going to have to um, not have you watch him anymore. Right? Thank you, but no thank you. 
So Lacey, at the age of 21, gave birth to Garnett, who would spend much of his short life in hospitals and doctor's offices. Lacey reported on Facebook that Garnett made 23 trips to the hospital just in his first year of life. First, she's the mother of a child that isn't hers, the psychologist Sirkin says, but at least she's a mother. That's a good story, right? Then she's the mother of a child who has problems and she kind of becomes the hero of her story. That's a great story. So you can kind of see in retrospect how all of this might have come together for her in a perfect psychological storm that creates a situation where she gets this extra attention for being the heroic mother of a damaged child. She starts living that life and believing that lie to a point where she has this perfect lifestyle that lets her keep going. We have Ginger Dabs Anderson. She was a nurse that would help Garnett feed and she states that he ate without problems, like he was like a good healthy boy, but despite this, Lacey said that he couldn't keep food down. She also recalls befriending Lacey inside the hospital, try and teach her and reach out to her and tell her like she could be a better mother, but discreetly, obviously, because yeah, you don't want to like, be bro, like, bro, stop <laughs> being a terrible mother. <laughs> Ginger also recalls that Lacey would feed Garnet all sorts of food, fried potatoes, mashed potatoes, fried orca, and never really used the boy's G-tube, the feeding tube that was in his abdomen. The former nurse also recalls in chilling detail an incident where she witnessed Lacey forcing Garnet's head under the bath water while he was fidgeting. Um. Not cool. Not cool. Well, she's gonna like be like, oh, now he has a breathing problem. Oh, so <laughs> sad. <laughs> so kind of going back to Garnett and his death, he had been admitted to New York's Nanak Hospital with a fever, pain in his stomach, headaches, and was suffering from seizure-like symptoms. So the hospital set up an EEG using a special cap on his head, wired to a machine to monitor his brain activity. He began to improve later that night and the next night following, but soon the symptoms started like worsening. He became in a lot of pain. Tests were carried out by the hospital revealed that his sodium levels were at 183. So that is a very high level of sodium. When he was admitted to the hospital, his sodium levels were only at 138. The doctors had no idea how or why they had gotten so high. Sodium levels also that high could lead to death. So they did transfer him to a special hospital for children called the Westchester Medical Center. Within a day using IVs, Garnet's levels dropped back down. However, due to the high levels earlier, his brain had already swollen so much, which caused brain damage, so he was placed on life support. Two days later, Garnett's brain swelled so much due to the side effects of the sodium, he was taken off life support and declared dead. So nobody at the hospital could establish via tests and medical experience how his levels had gotten so high while he was in the hospital. 
They believe that the only explanation was that someone was giving them to him, and the only person they believed could have done that was his own mother. They then reported this to the police, and the police started the investigation. Police went straight to Lacey's house. In the kitchen, they had found a medicine behind the table salt. <laughs> In the living room, there was an IV pole with a substance hanging from it. Now, Valerie was a neighbor um, also from the fellowship with Lacey, told police that when Garnet was on life support, Lacey had asked her to, to dispose of this feeding bag. Police had obtained the feeding bag from Valerie and the one in Lacey's home and sent them right away to be tested. Police had discovered that Garnet had been sick since he was a baby. At just two months old, he had been in and out of the hospital with severe ear infections. Garnett could not only hold down food and was losing weight, but at two months, his sodium levels were found dangerously high at 166. King. Doctors brought down his levels, but were confused on how it got so high. Also, when he was nine months old, Garnett's sodium levels became dangerously high again, so a feeding tube was inserted. The feeding tube, also known as a G-tube, that allows nutrients to go straight into his abdomen, so it's it gets processed a lot faster in 2013 a doctor was very surprised that garnett still had his feeding tube claiming he was a very happy and healthy boy but his mother lacy did refuse to refuse to have it removed sorry police received a test back from the bags they had shown that each bag had an equivalent to 69 small packets of salt holy crap yeah. Lacey was arrested and indicted by a grand jury of one count murder in the second degree and one count by manslaughter in the first degree. The Westchester County Medical Examiner ruled Garnett's death a homicide because of the really high levels of sodium. Prosecutors state that Lacey had poisoned her son by injecting lethal doses of sodium into his G-tube at home and in the hospital. They also say that the hospital had the video set up to rule out a seizure disorder. The video that they had was placed facing the bed to record any kind of physical activity of seizures. This video was shown in, shown in court. This video was shown in court. On January 19th, the footage shows Lacey taking her son and a small white cup to the bathroom. Shortly after the bathroom, Garnett would become violently ill, dry heaving, severe headaches, and diarrhea. Prosecutors claimed that they were in the bathroom when Lacey put the salt in Garnett's G-tube. Prosecutors also called all of Garnett's doctors to the stand, and they had claimed you cannot go from a 138 sodium level to a 186 level naturally. Like, that is impossible. Yeah, you have to, like, eat a bunch of McDonald's fries. Right? I mean, and like, they have to be, like, a bunch of McDonald's they have to be, like, fries. fresh, and they have to be salted, not, like, when it's been sitting there, and they don't put the salt on it, and you buy it, and then it's crap, and you're like, why did I do this? Yeah, no, that's, like, a lot of salt. So Lacey did not testify or speak at the trial. With Lacey's history of lying all of her life, she did lie about Garnett's father, he was not the police officer who died in a crash. He was, in fact, that guy I mentioned earlier, Chris Hill, and he was very much alive. 
Chris had wanted to be involved in Garnett's life, but Lacey had refused, so then that's when she had moved them. She just loved drama and people's attention so much that it made her kill her son. Lacey was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison and still does maintain her innocence. Lacey Spears is eligible for parole in 2034. She'll be 46 years old. Dang, she's crazy. Crazy. I hope if she gets out, she gets some help because she needs it. Yes, something. So my story starts on Sunday, July 26th of 2009, a woman named Diane Schuler was driving her minivan down the Taconic State Parkway in Westchester County, New York with her five-year-old son Brian, her daughter Erin, and three of her nieces, Emma who was eight, Allison who was seven, and Kate who was five. This was at about 1.30 p.m. However, she was driving the wrong way. Cars were swerving left and right, but it didn't last long. A sport utility car hit the van, killing everyone in the minivan but Brian and one of the little girls instantly. From the SUV that got hit, the father Michael Bastardi, son Guy Bastardi, and a family friend Daniel Longo also died. Once the crash happened, the mother and all of the children flew into a into an embankment while the minivan caught fire and spun out of control. It hit another SUV, thankfully only injuring the driver and passenger of that vehicle. Brian and the little girl were taken to the hospital. The little girl died, but Brian survived. This was the deadliest car accident in New York history in over 75 years. So I'm gonna play the 911 clip because that's fun. And it's like a mixture of like a bunch of 911 clips, so it might seem jumbled. cop that talked was like shocked because he's like there's like numerous fatalities and their kids and like it was just shocking for everyone that showed up to the accident <clears throat> so immediately the police got suspicious this doesn't just happen they didn't want to question Daniel Schuler, who was the husband until after the funeral they found out Diane was supposed to be coming home from a camping trip in the Catskills at Hunter Link campground Daniel had left in his truck with the family dog to head home. He recalls the last thing he said to them was giving them all a kiss goodbye and telling them he would see them when they all got home. They both left at 9.30 a.m. Diane apparently left in good spirits, arriving at a McDonald's at about 10 a.m. to get breakfast for the kids. <clears throat> Video footage at this McDonald's 
shows no sign of intoxication, and the employees do not recall smelling alcohol on her. At 10.45, there's footage of her pulling up to a gas station where she parks at a gas pump, walks into a store, and then leaves when she can't find what she needs. There's no audio in the video shown, but the clerk said she was asking about some pain meds and claimed that she did not seem intoxicated at the time. At 11.30 a.m., she calls Jackie Hance, who was the mother of the three nieces she had in her car, and she tells them that they were all running a little late. At 12 a.m., a witness saw her starting to drive a little erratically, moving in and out of lanes and cutting people off. And he says that when he looked, she appeared very focused at the wheel, but that she did almost get into an accident, cutting someone off while changing lanes. Around 12.30, another witness states that she honked at them, trying to rush to get to the rest area where she got out of her car and was doubled over, appearing to be sick. At 1.02, Diane called her brother Warren, telling him that she was feeling disoriented and had trouble seeing. Warren told her to pull over and that he would come and could hear the children crying in the background. Diane pulled over and one of the girls told Warren that they saw a sign that said Terrytown. At 1.10, three wrong numbers were dialed from Diane's phone. At 1.15, Warren attempted to call her, but it went straight to voicemail. It was revealed later that she had left her phone on the divider of the Tappan Zee Bridge toll when they had pulled over. Warren's friend then called the police to start to search for her as Warren got in Daniel's car and came to find her. She apparently started to drive south on the northbound lane into oncoming traffic for in the fast lane for 1.7 miles. She was going completely straight until the collision. <clears throat> Later an autopsy will show that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.19%. Her grass trickle levels were at 0.25%. The legal limit in New York at the time was 0 0.08. There was even more in her stomach that wasn't digested. They assumed that she had about 10 drinks <clears throat> before the time of her death. There were also high levels of marijuana found, about 113 nanograms per milliliter of tetrahydrocannabinol, which is THC for short, and they could time her last use of weed anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour before the crash. There was a broken 1.75 liter glass bottle of vodka in the minivan that they had discovered. After they found out this news, Diane's family was heartbroken. They couldn't identify why she would ever do this or even think of her having a drug or alcohol problem. Their grief turned into anger, guilt, shame, and shock over and over for days. They wouldn't make comments to anyone and the police even blocked off the street to their houses to allow them to grieve without the prying eyes of a mortified public. Any sympathy for the family quickly turned into pure hate. Diane showed up on a page titled, People You Will See in Hell. Comments on news articles called Diane a loser, a cunt, a slut, and it goes on and on. Unfortunately, this was not the end of their grief. The Bastardi family did not believe that Diane's family had no clue of her substance abuse problem. They lawyered up and threatened to sue. Daniel claimed first that he never saw Diane drink a day in his life. He thought that maybe she had a medical problem that caused her disorientation and that made her drink vodka instead of water. He did not deny that the toxology reports were correct. He just didn't think that she knew she was drinking alcohol, which makes no sense, but okay. <laughs> right. 
Because <laughs> I, you can't totally tell the difference between vodka. No, and no, no. Of course not. So later it was revealed by Daniel that she did occasionally drink vodka, and that the bottle found in the minivan was one that they had had for the past year that they seldom drunk. Usually they brought it with them on camping trips back and forth. Daniel also said that Diane uh, smoked a little bit of marijuana sometimes before bed to help her sleep. Neighbors of the Schuler family claim they saw nothing awry in the household. They didn't see any marital problems. They didn't see any fights. And the cops were never called on them besides like a firework complaint. So the crash was immediately considered a homicide on Diane's part. However, within weeks, it was determined that no criminal charges could be filed since the only one the police found responsible was Diane and she was now dead. They found no evidence suggesting that Daniel or any of her family knew that Diane was drunk or high at the time. The surviving son of the Bestardi family, Michael Jr., stated that they are, quote, appalled that they won't face the facts that she was drunk and killed seven innocent lives and ruined the lives of so many people, close quote. By November, however, sister-in-law of Diane, Joan Schuler, reported to the Bastardi family lawyers that she knew Diane to smoke pot regularly and to be a heavy drinker. Her son Brian, as the sole survivor of the accident, is now suffering from oculomotor nerve palsy, which affects movements in his right eye. He has undergone surgery and continues to do daily exercises like optical illusions to strengthen them. Brian will only say, quote, Mommy's head hurt so she couldn't see. Then the crash happened and I flew out of the car like Superman. Close quote. Oh my god. How old was he at the time again? He was five when it happened and then her daughter was two. So traumatic. He actually... So I want... There's two sources that I use mainly for this. Mm-hmm. All the New York Times articles that they did on it. Mm-hmm. And then there was a documentary on HBO that I watched called There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. And... They, like, asked Daniel, like, is Brian in therapy? He's like, no, he doesn't need therapy. Like, if he wants to talk about it, he can talk about it. <laughs> and um, oh his sisters are like, no, like, he needs to be in therapy. And right. by the end of it, they're like, yeah, we're going to go get him in therapy. The the aunt ends up putting him in therapy because she's like, this, he needs to go. Like, he's traumatized. So it was really sad and. Yeah, if you watch the documentary, it'll show pictures of the accident and stuff, so be wary of that. But it's just heartbreaking that it happened, and they don't know why she did it. They don't know if they think that she was in pain and she couldn't find any medication to take to take her pain away. Mm -hmm. So she just took a drink of vodka and then kept drinking, or I don't know, but they they don't think she would have done it. Unfortunately, On purpose, no one kinda, will yeah. ever know. Yep. And that's the sad thing about stories like these, is no one will ever know what happened. Yeah. Even if it is a drunk driver case and the driver survives, like, they'll remember what happened, but... Not really. Not really, either, yeah. you know, because you're so disoriented when you're drunk, as it is, you know. Don't drink and drive, people. No, do not. Thanks for the story, Hobbs. And thanks for your story, Christelle. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please rate and subscribe us. 
And of course, you can go and find all of our sources and pictures on TwistedSistersCrime.com. There also, we have our Facebook and Instagram links. Don't forget, we have TikTok too, you guys. Yes. We post some fun videos on TikTok. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all for listening. And until next week, stay smart, stay safe, and stay twisted. Stay twisted.